Hello and welcome to another episode of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. I hope you've all had a wonderful week and welcome back to episode two of the new season, if you like. Um, Strangely, and I'm very pleased about this, I've ended up with, well, we've ended up with double the amount of listeners as I left with, so don't quite know how that happened, but if you're new or coming back, then welcome. Um, Hello again, I'm pleased to have you guys here with us. Um, I've got a fantastic episode today, and we're back to the sort of two-part series of stuff now, so this is the first half of what will be a double episode. Um, And this episode is with a group of BBC or ex-BBC outside broadcast engineers. Um, So the club, the brass band club that my studio is on top of, so my studio is the top floor of a working men's club uh, which is owned by the local brass band which was established in the year 1814 if you can believe it. So there's a a long, long history of mining in the village that I live in. It's not really a village anymore. It's kind of a small town, but a big village. Um, and this uh, it originated as a wind band, I think, in 1814 and gradually moved into a uh, a brass band. Um, so obviously in Yorkshire, where I live, there's a huge history of, of uh, mining and brass banding. Anyway, it turns out that one of the bass players, uh, tuba, double, uh, not double bass, um, whatever they're called, E-flat, B-flat basses, Phil will be... Uh, cringing as I'm saying this, um, chap called Phil Driscoll um, was a broadcast engineer and used to do a lot of work for uh, a programme called Listen to the Band which was broadcast on Radio 2 on Monday nights um, and he's reignited the programme for a, a Leeds radio station called East Leeds FM um, and he's got this beautiful if you can call it it beautiful, I think it is. It's an ex-prison van. <laughs> so on the outside, it looks really brutal. It's got all of the um, kind of big nuts that are bolted into the windows and stuff. And then you open the door and it's got this beautiful little control room that uh, you know, and, and, and booth that Phil's created that's sort of sonically, basically it's sonically perfect, if you like. It's completely dead and it sounds really balanced and he's done a superb job of kitting it out. Um, in fact, I'll dig out some pictures and I'll put them on the Instagram page for you to have a look at because it's really, really cool. So I sat in the prison van recording this uh, and Phil sat in his house. I, w- I was on his driveway. Phil was in his house and then three of the other guys who this conversation is with were dotted around um, the country. I have a feeling one of them was on the other side of the world too. Um, but anyway, so they're all retired now and they're all off doing other things. But the thing that is common between them all is they are sort of different... Uh, overlapping generations of outside broadcast engineers um, from the sort of 70s right through to fairly recently to be honest Um, and that's an area of of audio that absolutely fascinates me me and Phil had a a lot of long conversations about um, sort of the way that I approach recording and the the thing that I really like about recording um, you know being spontaneous and all that kind of stuff that a lot of the sort of 60s mentality and early 70s mentality that we talk about in this podcast um, and there's a lot of similarities between that and the way that these guys do it um, although one of the main differences is these guys have to be meticulous in their planning and double planning and making sure that they essentially they only get one shot to capture it so rather than pushing things to the extreme so pushing saturation or you know any of these sort of creative devices that, that we use in the studio their job is to just make the 
safest recording possible um, in any circumstance. So often they've got very little time to set up and get going um, with a recording. So they just have to make it happen instantaneously um, with and however that is. So everything's just got to be super, super safe. Um, which makes for some nice differences and, and some really interesting points. And you know, I've got I've learned a huge amount chatting to Phil and these other guys. You'll get to know. Um, Phil, what would like me to point out? I think that this is absolutely fair. So the the conversation makes it seem like the the team at the BBC, which was based over in Manchester in the north of England, um, was only four men, and that just isn't the case at all. There were eighty four <laughs> people, in fact. Um, that had gone through the the training that they did um, at a, a place called Wood Norton down in uh, I think it's in it's down in the southwest somewhere near Evesham of England. Anyway, um, that's where they they did their training, and eighty four different people went through that training over the time that these guys were there. So they were certainly not the only ones. There just happened to be a small band of engineers that have gathered together and and stayed in touch. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. They also it would have. He wanted me to mention a particular engineer that has written a lot of material that you can find online. Um, he's written a lot of books. I'm just looking at the the stuff he's written now, which I'm I'm going to get hold of. So there's one called the Sound Engineer's Pocketbook, um, which seems to be in, incredibly rare and sought after. Actually, looking at this, um, Audio Engineer's Reference Book, Sound Engineering Explained, Sound Assistant, and they're all written by a chap called Mike Talbot Smith, who was a I obviously I I don't know of him, but Phil pointed out that he was one of the most superb engineers that he'd he'd met, and he uh, unfortunately died during the pandemic. But go and check out his books, Mike Talbot Smith. If you have a look on Amazon, there's some used copies going. Some of them are very expensive, but some of them are very reasonable. So anyway, enough waffling from me. Um, to to put it succinctly, it's a group of four outside broadcast engineers that work for the BBC. There's some great tidbits of information and there's so much we can learn from these guys. So uh, there's not very much talking from me. It's essentially just me asking a question and then they all talk between each other. And I love listening to them reminiscing. And they, there's just so much they can teach us. And I, I implore you to listen carefully and um, show some great respect to these these incredibly talented people. Um, so here we go. Uh, the a, a collection <laughs> feels called the BBC Old Timers, um, outside broadcast engineers. Here we go. Are you ready for my attempt at an advert? Here it comes. Make Noise Pro Audio are specialists in used pro audio equipment, and since 2015 they've been on an endless quest to supply all things modern, old, vintage and obscure. Everything from outboard, microphones, synthesizers, audio interfaces, drum machines, mixing consoles, studio monitors, amplifiers, cabling, furniture, and everything in between. Go and check them out at makenoiseproaudio.co.uk. Sam's a lovely chap, definitely go and do it. Enjoy the episode! If you guys could each take it in turns to introduce yourself and give a brief synopsis into what your background at the BBC was, and perhaps I'll just go in the order of names that I've got written here. So, Wilfred, if you wouldn't mind starting. I'm Wilfred Darlington. I worked for the BBC for very nearly 40 years. I started in the late 1960s, and in 2006 I went to the University of Salford and taught what it was I used to do. 
I left the staff of the University of Salford in November last year. Okay, and Graham? Uh, well, I finished up as a senior audio supervisor. Uh, I did twenty nine years as audio assistant, crawling up the uh, crawling up the slippery slope, and I left in two thousand and one after twenty nine years service because I was not comfortable with the way things were going and I couldn't actually get any further. And the pension offer was good. I then became a weekend railwayman or a steam railway. Um, oh. <laughs> so that's uh, that's my career in brief. <laughs> and Paul? Right, my name's Paul Smith. Uh, I started at the BBC in 1973 and finished in 2006, so 33 years. Um, I was interested in speaker building and that was what got me into working in a hi-fi shop and how I discovered that uh, there were other things to sound apart from uh, playing records. So um, I was lucky to get an interview in Birmingham for an audio assistant job, which was a new thing they were creating in the BBC's English regions at the time. And so I got on a training course and I was moved to Manchester, uh, where I spent 33 very happy years um, until, as Graham's just mentioned, um, the management system became so silly that uh, we were all absolutely tired out and knackered and uh, we were all too old anyway. So, <laughs> um, And finally, Phil. Yeah, I, I was there for much less time than all these guys. and They're, they're all about 10 years older than me so when I started I was tape offing for them all through through the 80s so when I started the world was almost completely analog and just starting to become digital when I left. Bab, I'm I think it would be interesting from my point of view to start from the beginning so you know Wilfred what was it like working you know when you first arrived at the BBC in the late 60s what was the working environment like in the sort of day-to-day practices? It's a good question. And in fact, uh, one of the things that uh, we were thinking about earlier was um, the fact that this is a history project in a sense. We're looking back over a period of time. And of course, when I joined the staff of the BBC in 1969, in fact, uh, I was working with people who had worked at the BBC before the Second World War. There's a one chap who was known to the people that are assisting you with the making of this programme now who knew him, Jack Hollinshead. He told stories about uh, the way technical operations was run in those early days. And for example, a very quick anecdote about that was that if you did a slow fade, on a, a recording, a disc. Um, if you did a slow fade, you, you picked up the device and moved it away from the microphone, you know, and the slower <laughs> the fade was the, the speed of the fade, depending on how quickly you carried it away from, from the microphone. And things were done like that. I also remember um, I joined at the time when the audio unit was more or less just formed. It had been headed uh, up by... Uh, on its formation uh, originally by Alan Fox, who was a, a, a sound supervisor. Um, and he didn't like the job. Uh, I don't think the office work suited him. And he came back as a sound supervisor and um, worked uh, in the audio unit for very many years after that. And he was replaced by another uh, um, former sound supervisor, Paul Bush, who uh, I think he stayed in the job a bit longer. He was actually technically the audio unit manager when I joined. And Paul, again, uh, reverted to his uh, earlier 
uh, job as a, a sound supervisor and worked with us for many years. Um, I remember seeing uh, a piece of equipment in the stores at Stockport Road where the um, sound outside broadcast uh, equipment was kept. And it was a, it was a, were a couple of um, MX-29s, which were passive uh, mixers, um, one was bolted to, on to, to the top of the other, and there were steel bands connecting the faders, and this was a very early form of stereo. And there was a <laughs> um, this was AB uh, mixing, not MS mixing, and of course you, you get this obvious problem where you've got this uh, j jittery sound left, right, left, right, left, right, as you did a fade. And there was a, a label on this piece of equipment. Uh, this equipment must never be used for a broadcast ever again. And signed audio manager, and I think it was Paul who put this label on it. Uh, 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 but the reason for this, and I think this in many respects would be one of the guiding, what's the plural of ethos? Ethies or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, the, the guiding light, I think, was that uh, stereo was coming in at the time. We were all working in stereo in this kind of the better end of um, sound programme making. And someone, because we hadn't got enough equipment, thought of doing this. And I think the mechanical workshop had made these steel bands. We used to say they were rubber bands. They were actually steel bands <laughs> that connected the faders. And, and this, this was a kind of um, a can-do ethos, which pervaded the whole of the BBC at the time. The BBC was generally uh, run by people who'd fought the Second World War. And, uh, you know, they'd come from the forces and this is a very can-do kind of thing. And I think while the BBC had that ethos, I think there were better times. When I hear my colleagues and friends talking recently about, you know, the bureaucracy or whatever, the management had become so impossible to deal with, it's because they remember those days when there was a, a can-do mm. uh, ethos. And I, and I think, uh, you know, some of the best things I did, I think, were, were informed by this. In my BBC career, I could sum it up by saying I think I was the only person who ever conducted an orchestra for uh, a TV programme and welded steel. Now, I didn't do it at the same time. These were on separate occasions. But I actually made um, equipment for use in the studio um, by welding steel. And I think... The harmonious um, blacksmith, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never claimed to be harmonious, actually, Paul, but uh, certainly I did do that. Oh, and you I were. think it was just that if you had a skill, you did it. And uh, the, the, yeah. that's the ethos I came into in 1969, and I think there were still scant vestiges of that in the uh, in the early noughties when uh, when most of us left. I'm quite interested in the sort of almost gear situation of the late 60s. I mean, I, mm. one of these episodes that I recorded was with um, Ted Fletcher, who designed the Alice consoles. Oh yes, um, and he he talked about. I know I know it's a completely separate side of, of audio but he talked about being working on Denmark Street as a as a backing vocalist and how a lot of the equipment that was being used it was not widely available like it is now so mm. it, a lot of it was made you know he made a lot of compressors and and preamps and things for for use on Denmark Street what mm. what was the equipment like that you were operating and, and where did it come from and were you having to like you say make things yourself for use if you needed it I think at that time the BBC tended to make its own equipment. I mean, that was it. Yeah. And, and don't forget, we're talking about a time when the rotary fader was the order of the day. There were no, um, whatever the opposite of a rotary fader is, a linear fader. There were no <laughs> linear faders, as I recall it, when I joined the staff. The desks were all um, 
quite ancient. But you see, we were conscious, as technical people are conscious of these things, we were conscious of when something new comes in, what its shortcomings were, as well as what its advantages were. And there was a kind of um, a technique we used very often if we were putting sound onto mute film. This most film was proper film, you know, sprocket hole type film, and the sound was recorded separately, and sometimes it wasn't recorded at all. There's a lot of mute film shot. You could affect, for example, the sound of marching feet. So if, let's suppose you had a piece of mute film with some soldiers marching on it. You could affect the sound of that by putting a constant moving background on a gram deck and flicking with a wrist action very quick fade ups and downs. So you could get, a, if you got a sound, you could go like that by using this kind of wrist action. This seemed almost impossible with a linear fader, I found. <laughs> so there were things like that that we needed to do and we needed to be adaptable. And, you know, progress doesn't always um, modernise everything that you need. I was just thinking uh, that we had some talk studios which had Neve and subsequently Calreg analogue desks in. And they were very good, very versatile, very easy to use. Then some bright spark decided it would go digital and they imported this Studer desk. Now, I'm not saying anything against Studer, but it was about 10 times the size, used four times as much power and was completely unsuited for the sort of work that we were trying to do on it. And that's sometimes where progress, you would think, oh, brand new spanking new digital desk, uh, it's going to be great. And it actually wasn't. It made the whole job much harder to do. And I think Paul would probably back me up on that one because uh, he had to use the thing as well. Yeah, I think a lot of that was actually the learning curve in trying to work out how to, to get the thing to function in the same way as the old desks used to do. Because the, the one that was in there immediately before that particular studer uh, was a multi-track Calric desk, uh, which was no, extremely uh, No, I'm good. not thinking of the... I'm thinking of the talk studio, not the drama the one. What, the Studio one. 4? All right. Yeah, the drama one did what it did well. It was just the same thing was put in Studio 4. It was completely unsuitable. You'll recall all the problems with oh, it. I, didn't, I never used it in Studio 4. Graham. Oh, OK, OK, OK. Well, I, perhaps I was the only one that ever had to suffer the thing. But, but that was a good example of, of what should have been forward progress actually being backward progress. There's a point probably worth making here that prior to just about that you know, first generation of digital desks and stuff coming in, Everything we used was really designed for the BBC to a kind of a BBC spec. The, right. the mixing desks in our ordinary talk studios were it was a they were called GP desks. It was a BBC general purpose mixing desk. These things were made by people like Calric and Neve. They were absolutely cracking and pieces Glenn, of kit uh, and Glenn, yeah, yeah. But they were spot on in terms of doing exactly what it was that we needed them to do. And if they didn't, we could easily get in there with maintenance and the soldering iron and make them do it. Which is what we did in the playhouse with the Neve desk that was in there to convert it to multi-track. Um, yeah. It was a an eight mono group, which became a four stereo group desk. And the four stereo groups were used to feed an eight track tape recorder. So something I've, I've talked quite extensively to Phil about this so I, I think I already know the answer but I'm interested to hear you guys talking about it is 
it's a quite a general question, but what exactly did you need the gear to do? So what would be the requirements and, you know, what were the sort of um, necessary aspects of the job that you you wanted from from a piece of gear that you were using? What, you know, what kind of quality audio and, and all of that kind of stuff were you were you after? Not fixed. Nothing was fixed. Every situation was different. That's why you needed the versatility. You might one day be using the thing for a one mic recording. The next day you might be recording a band. You might be mixing all the declarations from a general election the next day. That's why they had to be versatile. No two situations are the same. I mean, in a lot of pop studios, the setup is fairly similar from day to day. In our serious music studio, the setup was very similar. You know, it might vary in size from a symphony orchestra to a string quartet, but you were doing the same sorts of things day in, day out. But in other studios, and certainly on outside broadcasts, you just had no idea what it might be. It could differ from day to day. So that's why we had the huge jackfields, as they were called, of plugs and cords, so that configurations could be changed in a matter of seconds by a guy with old manual switchboard plugs and jacks. They made the things very, very versatile. Yeah, the modular Calrec and Glenn series of of OB desks were a fine example of that because yeah. they were so versatile. You could generate multiple clean feeds, which were really necessary if you were working with multiple outside sources, or you could use it to record music on. There were insert points. You could put external compressors and limiters in, obviously all analogue. But that was the great thing about that sort of BBC design where it was designed to be all-encompassing in terms of programme making. Now, Joe, you mentioned quality. I mean, the quality was very, very good. But in a sense, overall, quality then, quality now, is limited by the fact that FM is 15 kilohertz with a what 60 dB signal-to-noise ratio, providing the equipment exceeded that specification. That was all we needed out of it. We didn't need 32-bit or whatever, 48-bit resolution because the listeners wouldn't get any benefit out of it. It might help with post-production in making sure that noise floors were low, but the, the actual listener got no benefit above 15 kilohertz and 60 dB signal-to-noise, if you were lucky. I wonder if it's worth just kind of explaining this thing about outside sources and clean feed because it's almost something that we only get in the broadcast environment as an issue. And indeed, on this recording today, we've got the same thing. We've got links to people in the outside world with latency. So they've got to hear what's going on. So as we speak today, you know, Paul's in France. I'm sure he's hearing what I'm saying maybe a quarter of a second after I'm saying it. And similarly... When he speaks, it takes a quarter of a second to get here and a quarter of a second to get back to him. He's got to have a feed of what's going on that hasn't got him in it. Otherwise, he won't be able to speak because he'll just hear an echo of himself and he'll clam up. And all our radio desks in the studios had special outside source channels, multiple ones, so that there was a thing called a clean feed mix. So... For that particular channel, you could get whatever the main mix of the desk was minus that channel. So you were always able to send back something that the external contributor could listen to 
without any problems of of echoes and also on telephone circuits without uh, kind of sending the grotty telephone version of themselves back to themselves as well. Can I chip in there as well, Phil? Go for it. In as much as in the days that we were talking about in the early 70s and 80s, this was before digits were invented and, well, pretty much anyway, and all the circuitry that we used was analogue and didn't have any time delay problem at all. Whereas these days, digital circuits, I mean, the time delays can be can be up to seconds and, and so, which meant that yeah. the clean feeds that we were using were almost instant and it didn't need any of the software trickery that we're using today on this clean feed thing, on the clean feed yeah, program. So if, I, if I could just chip in there, that's absolutely right, Paul. In fact, um, in those days, we generally had um, remote contributors on a loudspeaker. Uh, you know, yeah. and at the, at the risk of there being some coloration, there was no delay at all. And of course, with the advent of satellite communication, for example, and analog to digital delay, that all became a thing of the past. And you know, remote contributors would either be on an in-ear monitor, or the, anyway, the loudspeaker thing went out, and that for me was a sea change. So, sorry, you literally had outside contributors; their voice was being broadcast through a loudspeaker in the recording. In- environment no they, they would be getting a feed of the program that they were contributing to that was minus their own contribution ah. but the uh, at the remote uh, location they would be hearing it on a loudspeaker we often did that oh i see and of course the, there was the reciprocal of that in the studio there was fallback of the program onto the studio floor and their output would of course be in that mix as well and there was never really a problem until there was a time shift the other the other thing in those days is that the studios were well designed and the, acoustically they could cope with that sort of thing yeah. as well. These days, any old glass shed seems to be used as a studio <laughs> and so you couldn't possibly use speakers in there. Uh, Joe, I think we probably just need to clear up some terminology here. What we're calling clean feed, a lot of listeners might know as mix minus. Okay. Yeah. Mix minus is actually a, a clearer definition of what's going on it's an american term but yeah when we talk about clean feed people just note it might be mix minus in their terminology so it's mix the mix minus their contribution that's it yeah mix minus and you'll see it labeled as such on some mixer desks interesting yeah it's a i mean this is this is learning for me as well I've I've got a list here of the the studios that you guys looked after that Phil sent me over. I mean, there's quite a lot that you've got. So, three talk radio studios, a classical studio, a drama studio, come music studio, and the radio theatre. I mean, I suppose on a on a daily basis, any one of you might be stationed in a any number of those. We did specialise to some degree. So, um, yeah, I was. Most often to be seen, for instance, in the talks or the classical studio, and very rarely in the playhouse, which was the theatre. Although I did occasionally, uh, two quite memorable occasions actually, but um, that was very rare. Paul was quite often seen in the playhouse and in other areas. Wilf, you were telly, weren't you? Really, you worked in the the television. No, studio I would say I did. An, I I would say I arranged across all of those um, all of those places that you mentioned. Um, yeah, and I never regarded myself as. Uh, I think the problem. I think the thing about the the audio unit it was set up to cover all aspects of broadcast sound, with the exception of film location. 
the film location people were separate, but uh, the audio units covered the, the dubbing theatre, for example, or what would now be called the audio post facility. And I worked in all of those places right throughout my BBC career. I think the, the tightrope, you know, kind of between uh, specialism and... and Jack-of-all-trades. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a kind of a managerial, a BBC managerial thing, that you, you put everybody into the same department. But people tend to a specialism, and I think I probably tended, uh, to some degree, to work in location, single-camera television, for a time. I think that probably the desire for, special, for specialisms would have come largely from producers who would want, they knew someone was particularly good at a particular thing and they would ask for them to be there. And uh, I think the, the way that it tended to work was, what did we do yesterday? Oh, we did this, or oh, we'll do it again tomorrow then, because it worked, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. So if you had a, a, an obvious skill in a certain area, then, then, you know, you were likely, I think, to probably then... And I think people like to specialise. I think it's your, your own energy tends to want to um, mug up on a particular area, you know, and, and, and people tended to do that. I think one of the problems that we had, really, was that in the Northwest, certainly in television, outside broadcast, we were mainly involved in sport. And uh, I remember Steve Robertshaw, who was sadly killed in an air accident, and he was very... Um, he had a very good pair of ears for sound, and um, and I think his, his interest was popular music in the main, rock, rock music. Um, and he went in for a promotion, and the appointment board, I think they played him a series of musical instruments and asked him to distinguish one from another, an oboe from a clarinet or something, a violin from a viol, or I don't know, something like that, something that was particularly tricky, maybe. And um, at the, afterwards, he didn't say this in the interview, I'm sure he didn't, but he said, I felt like saying, why didn't you show me a range of different balls, you know, snooker ball, rugby ball, football, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because this would be far more uh, pertinent to the kind of work that we do, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and he kind of had a point, you know. So there was, a, there was, I think we were probably the biggest sport region outside London. And of course, this had an effect on radio coverage as well, and we're not, I used to work on the crickets and and stuff like that. I don't think I did very much football, but I did. Um, I certainly lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> you. You must have been behaving yourself. <laughs> Something you just said then, which I think is a, is kind of an important part, and this was a, a, a big a big realization for me speaking to Phil prior to this conversation was, you know, uh, so you said whatever we did today worked, so we'll do it again tomorrow, and yeah. I think that that's. It seems to me that. You know, you only have this one shot to get it right, especially if you're working with sport or if you're doing a session recorded at the radio theatre or something where a band is, has come in or an orchestra is, is assembled for this one occasion to do it. You've only got yeah. that one shot to get it. And, you know, it's not like the luxury of a studio that I work in where we can repeatedly attempt it. You raise an interesting point. I think the ethos that I remember throughout the BBC, and particularly in the early days, I don't think this was a kind of... Um, you know, you're only as good as your last sort of gig kind of thing, which people often say about musicians. I think there was a genuine feeling that if you made a mistake, then you learned from it. And what would be the point in not giving you another shot and another shot? Because you're only going to get better at it. Yes. I, that was a kind of, again, what I would trace back to the, the kind of people who, who taught us what we did had fought the Second World War. The guy who was uh, the senior uh, guy who was uh, involved in orchestral recordings was Pip Shepherd. 
And Pip was a flute player and he played in a band, he played several bands with me, and he had been a radio operator in the Merchant Navy and I think he'd been, had had his ship torpedoed under him about four times. He was lucky to be alive and he's a very genial man. But there was no kind of idea that uh, if someone had made a mistake, they could never be let loose on that type of programming again. You know, you, you just, it was part of your training. Mm. The other thing was, if you were talking about live programming, I think we generally rehearsed everything very well. The only thing that was never rehearsed, of course, was news. And I remember in a week, I might put out 45 minutes a day of live television, and I was hearing it at the same time as the viewer was hearing it. <laughs> but you got used to it, you had strategies for dealing with this. You had something up your sleeve, you know. You always had a, a way of dealing uh, with, um, you, you know, it's like risk assessment. You thought your way through it beforehand. You know, what could they throw at us kind of thing, you know. There's an old anecdote about... Um, some mute film that was in a news programme and the editor had sent word to the sound supervisor to say, can you, it's turkeys. So the sound supervisor got a disc with some turkeys gobbling. And this is probably... A, it was chickens, story. Will. <laughs> Will, it was chickens. <laughs> OK. Chicken, I was in the studio. Uh, Mavis well, yeah. <laughs> said, there's chickens. So I picked a disc of Farmyard and then when they actually cut to the shot, it was Buxted Chickens in Buxton. Yeah, dead being chickens. Uh, frozen yeah, chickens yeah. on a production line. Uh, but fortunately, yeah. I, I got an industrial landscape disc, so I whacked it up quickly. But I'm sure one or two clucks got out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, we used to do this a lot. Um, so when, when the film meant something with sprocket holes, we used to often have to put sound effects on the... Um, over the over this film, and I re, I remember we used to have a kind of a a little competition amongst ourselves to see if we could work in certain sound effects, and there were oh, all yes. other stories there. Which, uh, there, there was there was one where someone asked within the team, not the production staff didn't know this, but they, they said, right, you need to work this one into into the program, and it was a horse whinnying, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, I thought, how am I going to get this into it? And I remember because we were live, we hadn't seen it before, and this piece of film came up, and it was the Duke of Edinburgh visiting a factory, and there was a close-up of someone just about to open a cupboard door, you know, in this factory. It was maybe where they were making kitchen units or something like that. And as this hand, I don't know whether it was his hand, but the hand reached and opened the door, and I dropped this f- effect in, and, it went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and no one, no one in the in the in the production apart from my colleague knew that I'd done this, you know. <laughs> but I, you know, this was kind of, of a skill level in my view that, you know, you were able to, to do this. I remember being asked for a badger. I think the story was um, they'd put some tunnels under a motorway in the M6, I presume it was, to allow badgers to travel between one side and the other without getting squashed on the motorway, you know. They put these sort of badger tunnels in and there was some footage of badgers and I, you know, at the last minute, you know, getting hold of a badger effect uh, was going to be tricky because we only had a few minutes' notice. And I got a pig snuffling about in a pigsty, uh, which was in the 28 series of farmyard effects, and 28C <laughs> or something like that it was. And I, I put it on the, the gram deck at 78 instead of 33. So it kind of sort of sounded quicker and smaller and, you know... <laughs> 
Uh, and, and, and I remember the editor came through after. He said, where the hell did you get a badger effect at that kind of notice from? I said, well, you know, I've got a good memory for these discs. You know, so let's, but let's face it, Will, who knows what a badger sound is like? Four <laughs> well, percent of us, it, maybe. Yeah. Do you know, this, that, that's, well, that's another anecdote. It was said that uh, Trevor Hill, who um, produced dramas with us, had produced in, in the years before, even before I worked for the BBC, I think it was a the Battle of Cressy or something or other, and the, someone had said that a, a company of longbows letting loose at the, at the same time, at the same instant, which they always did, it, it seems to me, uh, it sounded like someone plucking a double bass, and I think he actually used uh, the effect of a double bass being plucked because this was this research had revealed this is what it sounded like. And I think someone wrote, they put the story is someone wrote to the BBC and said, who was playing the double bass at the Battle of Cassie? <laughs> <laughs> um, because the point is pe people don't have to hear the right sound. They have to hear something that convinces them. Otherwise they're distracted. And in this particular case, if it were true, and I'm sure it probably wasn't, it was a story, but if it was true, the listener would be distracted by hearing a sound which he, he or she would have identified with something else. Mm. And a lot of the time it was putting in an effect which didn't unsettle the listener. Uh, and that's, that's true of film as well. And I think when they designed the, the sound effects for Star Wars and those kinds of things, they had this very idea in mind that you... You put something into the picture, as it were, that doesn't unsettle, convinces the viewer. And we were, that's, that's what we used to do. The role, it seems to me, when I was working in television, and I didn't, as I said, do it all the time, but I knew I was there to avoid distraction rather than to, to be authentic, if I can say that. Yeah. Going to your question about this business, it's a one-shot job. You've got to go there, you've got one chance to get it right. Recently, my wife, Helen, said to me, Paul and Graham have got exactly the same personality disorder as you. Um, and it's to do with being obsessively prepared for stuff. Uh, because cause we had to be. There was no other way of being. You had to be ready for the main thing, and then you had to be ready for any of it breaking, and also for the unexpected. And... I don't know, it just develops a mindset and a personality disorder, apparently. <laughs> the problem with that is that it makes life very, very difficult when things are out of your control. I remember once I was doing a broadcast up in Glasgow Cathedral and we turned up there, we got six praise bands and or choirs and things to record for a programme for Radio 2, I think it was. But I turned up there with a big vehicle, we rigged it all in, there were eight or nine multi-cores went in, hundreds of, you know about a hundred my clients I think altogether and we'd set it all up there was a PA company there that had been hired in and they got in there just before us and they'd plugged in the power and they'd said this new wonderful 150 amp that's been put in by Glasgow Council is line neutral reversed and every time we plug in all the red lights come on and we checked it and it was it was line neutral reversed so we then had to wait three and a half hours before we could actually plug anything in so that electricians could be found on a saturday afternoon in glasgow who would come and change this 150 amp feed over to the correct <laughs> uh, correct line so it doesn't always you, you, you just can't prepare for that even if we'd had a generator we still wouldn't have been able to go forward mm. I agree with everybody on that point. Yeah, the the, the ethos I found was, as, as I say, you know, was it punishing people for making a mistake. It was never, I never remember anything like that happening. 
And as I say, I relate that kind of wartime stuff. You know, I remember my father talking about someone who uh, missed a, a cracked exhaust stub on a hurricane, and it was the CO's plane. <laughs> you know, it was done. He was he, this chap was automatically on the charge, and he was brought before the sort of court martial. And the end of it was the CO said to him, "Don't do it again." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> the matter was completely dropped. You know, this is a very serious issue. You know, yeah. and I think that I think that probably pervaded. I can remember something similar happening in film processing at the BBC when I was there. Some new member of staff had caused a whole load of film to be ruined, you know, so they had a court-martial, you know, and again, the supervisor of the departments, they asked him what he thought ought to happen to this individual, and then he said, he won't be doing it again, you know, and that was the end of it, you know, you know, it was about training, you know, yeah, the training how, how wasn't good enough, learn. you know. This is, yeah. It's about mentoring exactly. as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. If you did do it twice, then you definitely didn't get to do it, do anything again. <laughs> there were two points that came out of Will's thing about... The first was the immediacy of it all. You would think, I did a lot of symphony orchestra recordings, and you would think, oh, you know, there's a detailed rehearsal and you balance and there are discussions and everything. And on occasions, I got 20 minutes to get the mix because... People had things on in the afternoon or the conductor wanted to play golf or whatever. And he was happy with the music. So I needed to get my bit done quite quickly. And if I took too long about it, then there would be mutterings and grumblings. And on many occasions they said, can we record after the coffee break? So you had to use what you knew worked because you knew you wouldn't have much time to experiment. I mean, occasionally you could slide an experimental bit in uh, on spare channels and have a quick play with it. But any experimentation had to be done out with the basic process of recording, which was to use what you'd used before and get it done you know, as quickly as possible. Professional re music recording is very different to what people imagine. So, so um, what does that it, mean on a on a practical level? So, say you're you're there with a, a symphony orchestra and you have a short time to prepare this mix. What what does that practically mean? What decisions are you making? To... I, I I have a rig that I know works, and if you said to me now record a symphony orchestra, I would use the same rig, and you know it almost always works, and you put in a little bit extra just in case some things are different, depending on the music. You know, the, you obviously know what you're going to record. Mm -hmm. And if it has a celeste part, for example, or a harp part, you may stick out an extra mic or so to just make sure that you don't lose that in the general tone. But you, you have what it amounts to, a standard rig, and you use it. And that allows you, because you know what the settings are roughly going to be, that allows you to get it. There is one lovely example of this. The Halley Orchestra's instruments got stuck in a snowstorm coming back from Sheffield. The band had got back, uh, but all the big instruments, cellos, basses, stuff like that, uh, were all stuck in a pantechnic and somewhere on Snake Pass. And they couldn't get the van out in time for the afternoon rehearsal for a live Radio 3 concert in the evening and by the time the van did arrive the rehearsal time had expired and the musicians were on the statutory break so both Radio 3 and the producer were in a bit of a panic as to what we were going to do 
and I said, I've got an idea. Just before we go on air, get them to play the Queen National Anthem. Yeah. And I'll balance the orchestra on the Queen. And the producer said, but it's a wind band, Kurt Vile, Threepney Opera, for one of the pieces. I said, get them to play the second verse on the wind band. (laughs) Right. So off we go. Conductor comes on. And the Queen starts off. I'm doing my balance. And you hear all the seats going up because we didn't used to play the Queen uh, at concerts normally. Everybody takes by surprise. All stand up. Seats all go up. We play the Queen. I fiddle about and get my balance. And end of the first verse, all the seats go down as people sit down. And then the wind band started up with the second verse. (laughs) So we got all the seats going up again. They all stood up for the second (laughs) verse. And at the end, all the seats going down again as the the verse finished. And then the announcer came in. Good evening and welcome to the Free Trade Hall where the Halle Orchestra are going to that. (laughs) Off we went quite happily. And within five bars of... The first piece playing, I got the balance that I was intending to use and carried on using. And the wind band sounded all right as well. So the producer, you know, plaudits all round, herograms here, there and everywhere. But so you could actually balance an orchestra on the first verse of God Save the Queen. <laughs> Something that kind of interests me is that, you know, when you're in a, in a recording studio environment, you can pour over details and obviously mix and balance until you're you're really happy whereas you you don't have that luxury so at the end of a day do you sort of come away thinking a sense of achievement with the idea that you got a balance in that moment or are you thinking oh, I could have done that a little differently or are you thinking next time I'll do this a little differently you are always thinking next time I'll do it a little differently even if it's a normal session and you've had the time you need and you've listened, you still think you could do it better. I mean, there's another anecdote. It's a bit self-aggrandizing, but I'll tell you about it anyway. (laughs) After supper at home, I came in and sat down in front of my hi-fi and put the radio on. And it was a concert, and the sound was stunning. And as I listened, I realised it was our orchestra, because you can always tell, and it was Studio 7. You can always tell. And I'm thinking... Which one of my colleagues has done this? I'm really jealous here. Why have they done so well? And it booted me through the whole performance. I, which The music, I couldn't remember anything about it. it was, as far as I was concerned, it was new to me. And I was so annoyed. At the end of the concert, I rang Radio 3. And, because you could do that. And <laughs> explained the situation and said, I'm, you know, I'm really cross that somebody's got a better balance than me. Who was it? And they went away and looked on the recording sheet, came back and said, what's your name again? And I told them. And they said, hmm, interesting. It was you. <laughs> Fantastic. And my response to that, well, if you don't like your own balances, it's probably time you went off and did something else. <laughs> but the, 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 the point was it validated what I was doing because I'd completely forgotten this session. I'd completely forgotten the music. So, I, you know, I had no memory of having done it, but I liked what I heard. So it was obviously what I'd wanted to get. And presumably the producer liked it as well because, you know, it was broadcast. But it was so interesting that that I had no recollection of doing this session, but I liked the result. 
So it just proves you, you know, you have to light your own balances. Well, I suppose there's an element of um, something that they talk about a lot these days of, of kind of flow state. You know, that if you're working day to day in a in a hectic environment, you probably are not thinking too much about what you're doing in a conscious sense. You're you're making decisions based on your experience, and um, and just going with your gut feeling oh, yeah. in a moment. And yeah. you know, that's a it's probably a really nice sense of accomplishment to hear yourself back and and then realize that it was you and, and feel proud of what and you've you done. actually like it yeah, yeah. but uh, that brings me very quickly to the other point i was going to make which was when you're doing something like balancing an orchestra or a quartet or whatever it was a point wilf made about doing something that the listener is comfortable with the orchestral sound that you broadcast on radio three isn't the best seat in the house it's what the listener imagines the best seat in the house to sound like. You follow me? Yes. That it's not what the best seat in the house sounds like. It's what the people at home, it makes them feel that they're sitting in the best seat in the house. <laughs> it's got to be true to reality. I mean, a lot of modern mixes that are going on are multi-mic. There are microphones everywhere. And every vestige of feeling that you're in an ambience that you're in an area has been stripped out it just sounds like a bunch of cardboard cutouts and you can hear that it sounds like a bunch of cardboard cutouts whereas if you do a good job the person will feel they're in the bridgewater or liverpool phil or you know wherever it was in our area uh, leeds town hall that we did these recordings and that's the trick for me that's the trick is to, to let the listener think that they're listening to a real orchestra playing together in a real space. It's an obvious point, but it's something that, as a listener, it's really easy to forget. I'm kind of interested in... So, Paul, I know you worked in the sort of more pop and light music side of things. How does what Graham's talked about translate into that style of music? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I, I, when I started off... Um, they started training me up with the uh, Northern Radio Orchestra, uh, which was uh, about 17, 18 musicians. So it was four, four, five, and a rhythm section. Plus uh, there were horns in at the start. There was extra woodwind. There were three percussionists, stuff like that. But everybody knew how they ought to sound. And in the environment that they were in, using the miking system that we had, with pretty much the same desk configuration day in day out you tended to get pretty much the same sort of sound and then things started to become a little bit more adventurous with some of the arrangements when things like the star wars theme came out and so we started multi-tracking various bits of it and then throwing in all the sound effects onto the multi-track and fiddling around to get the timing right and then remixing that afterwards but the majority of the stuff was just done straight down onto quarter-inch tape with Phil as my tape up at the back for a lot of the time, three and a half days a week, day in, day out, day in, day out, with the same musicians pretty much, with one or two depths coming in, uh, but basically the same thing. Now, going out and doing them on the road, I never did them on the road because they weren't that sort of band. It would have been too expensive to do it. We didn't have uh, the sort of Radio 3-style orchestral budget to do that sort of thing. So, you know, it was, a, it was a different thing from what Graham has explained. Because if I go out and I record 
musicians in an environment that isn't a studio, then it's nice to be able to carry that environment across. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that's particularly noticeable with programmes like Coral Evensong, because every week is a different cathedral, different acoustic space with different singers, different organ. And there you can really be imaginative with the way that you mic the place to sound like where it is. So, but sometimes you're actually fighting that church acoustic to get detail as well because the production people always want to hear the words. Yes. And the wonderful thing about Coral Evensong is that the whole thing just floats over your head into this wonderful acoustic and everybody knows the words already. But anyway, there was... Uh, it was quite often a little bit of friction there. I've got in my notes that Phil gave me about a... I'm quite interested to hear about a, a, an outside broadcast, an articulated lorry that you worked out of that seems absolutely jam-packed full of gear that is, I mean, in the modern age, is, is unfathomable that you managed to drive all of that around. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's what we did when we went out to... Uh, I was lucky enough to be myself and Steve Robertshaw and Tony Worthington, who worked in audio in... Uh, Steve was, was mentioned earlier on. We were, I think we were the first supervisors to go out and record in concerts for Radio 1 outside of London, because London always kept it to themselves. But we could only do that because we'd got these wonderful vehicles. First of all, we had SCV2, which had got uh, D-Rig Calrec inside, and it was a bit of a... It, it wasn't a particularly good vehicle at all. But once we got SCV5 and Birmingham got their SCV6, they were fabulous vehicles. They were fitted with a 40-channel SSLE series with the first versions of the SSL computer in. So we got total recall if we were doing complicated shows where there were three or four different setups. Ours was equipped with an Atari MTR90 with a space for a second one so that you could do continuous recording. On the wall, there was in the Jackfield, there was a submixer which gave you about 16 channels, I think it was, that you could group into four. So you could do audience submixes and things, so you could have close audience, distant audience, and, and things like that for concerts. And then on the, the table on the left hand side, I can't remember what was underneath it, there was racking and various things, uh, but there was space on the top there to put a 32 channel Soundcraft desk in as well which we used for um in fact i was helping steve on the main road fleetwood mac gig <laughs> where the 32 channel submixer on the left had got all the the wacky percussion stuff that was in <laughs> and so it was two of us that were actually doing the, the steve was doing the main mix and i was trying to chase my way around uh, whatever percussion thing that, uh, that popped up next. But it was a great vehicle for doing that sort of thing. And SCP 5 and 6 went on to do Live Aid. They did the Mandela Birthday Party, Queen at Wembley, all that sort of thing. And that was done straight live onto whatever broadcast means was there. It was probably post office lines in those days. But they were great vehicles for doing that. Monitoring was BBC LS58s, which have been... I mean, there's still people actually making those. I think Graham Audio still make a, a version of that. And then the ubiquitous Yamaha NS10s as a, a second check monitor. And an Auratone. We always had a little Auratone. <laughs> but that was the SCVs. They were great vehicles, fabulous vehicles. 
should mention that, that the desk in the SCVs was substantially the same desk in Studio 7, the classical music studio. So we actually had commonality of equipment in the big desks, which was very handy when you uh, had to work in one area and uh, and another, that you know, were sitting down at what was essentially the same desk. What what does SV stand for? Just out of curiosity. Sound control vehicle. Ah, there we are. I'm just making a note of all the all the terminology <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the yeah, BBC it's, it's is worth... a great one for initials and jargon. <laughs> yeah, it's worth pointing out that in the various desks that we had in the BBC, I mean, uh, Wilf was talking about rotary faders, the MX twenty nine, twenty eight, twenty nine series, which are passive line-level mixers, uh, 600 ohm in and out. We went from that to, there was a, a little pie mixer that we had on Radio OBs, and then the Glens and Calrex came in. In the studios, we started off in old BH with, I think there might have been one BBC Type A desk in one of the studios. There was. It was Studio 2. Studio 3 had the slightly more modern, that was the one on the top floor with... Uh, that with had the BCM 10 in, didn't it? Where it in Edgeways and the sort of talks. Uh, yeah, games. and Studio uh, 5 was a tight B-valve desk, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the interesting thing about we were... I mean, I, I can't tell you now who designed these desks, but I'm pretty sure they were BBC people. And in fact, in around about 1982... When John Bauer, who had been a BBC engineer, he uh, became the head of sound at uh, the Royal Northern College. And he phoned the office one day and said that the desk he had built for the BBC in London somewhere was being scrapped. And he'd managed to um, somehow persuade the BBC to transport the desk up to Manchester and I remember we, we all went over to the northern and helped him unload it and why on earth he wanted it I don't know because it's one of these grey big grey monsters with seemingly very little in them you know <laughs> and rotary faders you know but he was a person who had designed the stuff and, and built it and, and then operated it and I think you were asking me questions before well, what was the culture like and you know my earliest recollection and that was basically it and that was kind of a a codicil to that culture, you know, that uh, he thought this desk was worth preserving. I don't know what happened to it, um, but uh, he must have found a, a large cupboard somewhere in the Royal Northern to put this huge <laughs> thing. I gave him a complete, just post-war outside broadcast kit on a trolley stacking units. It was an OBA-9. It was yeah. an upgrade of the OBA-8, which had yeah. been designed during the war as mm. a, an austerity emergency recording kit and we were talking earlier about the faders with the tin bands around them that was an old oba8 wilf that um, it was it was an mx MX 29 was the mixer for the oba8 kit wasn't it the oba9 kit was just a little bit more streamlined but it was essentially the same thing and interestingly enough one of my colleagues has a wartime kit and when the East Lancashire Railway, our local preserve railway, had a wartime weekend, a 1940s weekend, we set up the kit and actually did a broadcast with it. And that was probably the very, very last occasion that a live broadcast was done on a wartime OBA8 kit. And it worked extremely well. Wow, and the meter. Well, I think I think uh, I think Graham. I'm right in saying you're speaking to us um, 
uh, on a microphone uh, that was um, designed the year I was born. No, I'm not actually. It sounded too oh, old, so I've put an <laughs> SM58 in instead. Uh, okay. The output okay. level was a bit low, so the noise yeah. was a bit higher, and it was a bit open. And it's a good job I did use a cardioid because the scaffolding people who are scaffolding my house for some repairs are back in action, okay. and there are drills and all sorts, which we would have heard in full hi-fi. Uh, mono if we'd uh, if we'd use the ribbon mic no i did think of using the ribbon mic but as i say it wasn't really suitable so we went with a, a more modern equivalent that's what it like that. so there we have it my conversation with the bbc old timers as phil called them uh, the collection of outside broadcast engineers. I really hope you enjoyed that episode um, and we'll have more from those guys next week. Uh, before I sign off, I'd just like to remind you that you can find out more about me and everything that I do. Oh, I hate saying that. You can find out everything about me and everything that I do um, at allyouneedisdrums.com uh, Also my Instagram, which is at allyouneedisdrums. If you'd like to find out about the drum sessions I do, I've set up a separate Instagram for that. That's at Joe Montague Drums. Montague is spelled M-O-N-T-A-G-U-E. So at Joe Montague Drums. And that's all about the drum sessions and studio stuff that I do. Um, a huge thank you to Adam Mallett for the artwork design he does for this podcast. To Joe Kane for the intro and outro music. Thank you to you guys for listening. Uh, once again, I hope you enjoyed it and I'll be back next week. Goodbye! <laughs>